The question for the afternoon talk is, what is an experience? We could, and we might ask ourselves in a rather uh, simple way, what is this life? What is it that we are attending to and dealing with? If we look at it rather uh, simply and directly, you and I might say, well, life is field of experience. You might even say life is an unfolding sequence of experiences. So that when we take note of our existence, you notice that we're going from uh, one experience to the next. But it isn't easy for us to draw the line, so to speak, between one experience and the next. So each of the days that you and I have been here, we can look back over the days and we can say, well, this happened to me on this day and this happened to me on this day and this, this. And some of it seems very similar and some of it seems very dissimilar. And some of it I'll never remember, and so forth. But it's rather hard for us as human beings to actually draw the line between the ending and the finishing of one experience and the arising and the beginning of the next. And so what we find with our language with our words and our concepts that it seems to help us. We'll use some words and we'll say, oh, this morning I had this state of mind and it lasted for a certain amount of time. And then that state of mind fell away and another one came, which was worse. And then that fell away, and I had lunch, <laughs> which was better. <laughs> and then I had a nap, and that was great. <laughs> then I had to go to a sitting, and that was the worst of all. <laughs> so we begin to give some definition begin to pinpoint and we begin to use labels to give a kind of generality to a period of time. And we might say, now that we're on the final full day together, we might look back a bit over it and we might say, oh, I went on this retreat at Spirit Rock and it was a wonderful experience very short memory. <laughs> and another person may say, I went on this uh, retreat 
and it was just terrible. Another short memory. Because the interpretation, the concept of, has selected a beginning and an end, and it's attributed it as having something. It's attributed it as being something. And sometimes we underestimate the potency of the label itself, of the description, and what goes along with it. What would it be to experience and give no label to it? To have no definition of it? To put our mind aside and in a certain sense not to know what it is? As though we'd never had it before. We couldn't call it happiness and joy and bliss. And we couldn't call it uh, anger and frustration and uh, disappointment. Because the very words themselves tend to carry a whole baggage. They tend to carry a whole interpretation about what I would like or not like in the future or whatever. Would it be an extraordinary thing to have no concept of an experience? No description of it whatsoever. Like it's never been known before, never felt before. And it wouldn't matter for us then so much whether it felt to be good or bad, or whether it felt to be pleasant or unpleasant, or comfortable or painful or worthwhile or um, irrelevant. It would just be an experience coming out of the field of time and we would embrace it. We would just receive it. One of the um, patron saints of the Dharma scene is Rumi who's been um, uh, adopted as one of the patron saints, along with Mary Oliver and Hafiz and others. <laughs> and there's a lovely poem of uh, Rumi. I'm hoping to bring it in to uh, 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 read uh, to you, but I, frankly I couldn't be bothered to walk down to the bookshop. But um, I'll give you the drift... <laughs> hell of a long way down there, you know. <laughs> and Rumi says in one of the poems, very beautifully, he says, invites us to be the host and whatever comes to regard as a guest. Coleman Barks is uh, probably the most loved of the uh, translators of Rumi's book. And whatever the guest that comes, to welcome the guest. Happiness comes, 
welcome the guest of happiness. Feeling miserable, welcome the guest feeling uh, miserable, sometimes called parents. Welcome <laughs> feeling depressed, feeling joyful, welcome them all as guests. And that kind of attitude, that kind of being a host, that kind of welcoming to uh, experiences is such a shift for us because of all of our struggle and our fight and our resistance with them only feeds the intensity of them only gives magnification to them and sometimes you and I we don't realise we're so foolish as poor creatures of the earth that our very resistance to an experience is the wood for the fire. The only thing that can sustain a painful, difficult experience is the fighting with it, is the wanting to get rid of it. And that very pressure upon it accelerates it. Yet, in our foolishness as human beings, we think and we believe that my resistance to it, my wish, my desire to get rid of it is the way to get rid of it. And it just feeds it, and it feeds it. And what can happen to us if in this world of experiences you and I are in any way attached to the pleasurable to the degree that we are will increase the resistance to the non-pleasurable. Any attachment that you and I have to the pleasurable experience, short-lived or long-lived, will correspondingly increase, to repeat myself, the resistance to the non-pleasurable. And if we don't learn this acute lesson of life, we're in constant dualism, pushed backwards and forwards between trying to hold to the pleasurable, keep it and preserve it, which is impossible. And constantly finding ourselves unwittingly having to face the non-pleasurable. Because they both have an interconnection very much bound up with the degree of holding that takes place. Hold to one is the invitation to the other. And it's an extraordinary thing for us as human beings to actually stop and actually ask and question myself. When I'm resisting something it's only the indication that I'm holding to something else. And therefore, I become my own worst enemy. So, Rumi's poem is a reminder to us of the non-dual. Welcome, receive what comes. Hopefully, with some magnanimity. Hopefully, graciously. And if that's a bit too high an order for us, well, at least with a little bit of equanimity, 
etc. And sometimes the guests, as we all know, do stay around a bit too long, etc. But that's what guests are like. They do. Sometimes they arrive on our doorstep. In my home, it's not a, I've been sleeping upstairs and come down downstairs in the morning, there's someone sleeping on my sofa. How do you get in here? Oh, we, we heard, Christopher, where you keep the key. Oh, thank you. How long are you staying? Three days. Sure, oh, really? Oh. They come, they go, they come, they go, they come, they go, etc. called life <laughs> so if we can be the host and making the allowances of the flow of what, who and what comes into our life and what goes out and what comes into our life and, and uh, what, what goes out and, and looking as I say holding to the pleasurable resisting the non, non-pleasurable we can take some of the potency out of that freedom of being is very close at hand lovely Freedom of being is very close at hand. Sometimes in life, I experience this, I'm sure uh, you do as well, situations arise, experiences arise, and there can be, or to humanly enough, different kinds of interpretations of those experiences. To give a personal example here, at the end of uh, last summer in a European country, I had two uh, meetings with a, a woman retreatant for about 10 minutes uh, each meeting. And in the course of that meeting, I would say some misunderstanding occurred. And the uh, misunderstanding was the interpretation, I would say, of my uh, contact uh, with her. And the outcome of that was a complaint was sent in to Gaia House. The outcome of that, typical Buddhist style, loads of meetings. (laughs) And then there was reference, oh, Christopher, this is not the first time. Christopher, this happened during the 1990s as well. And that generated, understandably, even further concern and therefore further meetings. And from one small situation, you and I have experienced these things in our life, the flow on goes on and on, and it isn't easy. People are concerned, have the right to be concerned. Whoever it might be, students have the right to be concerned, centres have the right to be concerned, teachers have the right, fellow teachers have the right to be concerned. How to work with situations where, I would say, misunderstanding arises around intention, the tension felt one side to be uh, supportive and good-hearted and the other uh, person felt it meant more than that, something personal in it in some way or other and the consequences that goes, goes with it. And sometimes with that, with these experiences that arise uh, 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 for us, it requires from us, and I know other good friends here in various roles have been in similar situations in life, that where these situations arise in life, it requires from us some 
capacity to be steady with a situation, to understand experiences and interpretations of experiences may differ. How frequently and how easily in the very flow of our life the outcome uh, of that. Sometimes we are like ships passing in the night, trying to meet. And sometimes, even worse, ships colliding in the night. (laughs) And we think, gosh, what happened? And something around, again, experiences and how you and I view them, how our relationship is to them. And that requires from us, sometimes, it needs more awareness, of course. It needs greater vigilance, of course. It needs the vitality and the necessity of clear and unwavering feedback. It needs taking uh, appropriate steps to learn, to listen, because we're all in a, a process of discovering what it is to be in this world. So we've spoken in the earlier talks here Uh, about the profound experiences, enlightenment uh, experiences, the understanding of uh, of these uh, deep experiences. But in the same kind of way, with the power of uh, reflection there, it's not only being true to ourselves and listening to ourselves about things which have happened in our life, but that uh, wise perception, I feel, and that wise view, what is to be seen about this? What's to be discovered about this? What are the appropriate steps to take uh, about this? And that sometimes does mean that different steps are taken in different ways. All of this is part of the exploration of life. All All of this is the part of looking at experiences, looking, as I said earlier, with regard to our interpretation of them. I, a couple of years ago, just after this uh, terrible uh, uh, tragedy that befell this country of uh, 9-11, a publisher in uh, New York and uh, London asked me if I would uh, write uh, a book on attending to terror. And the book, uh, the intention behind the, the book was to give uh, support to people who were dealing with terror in their lives in a variety of ways, whether it's you know, political or social or, uh, or, or, or personal. So in the weeks after uh, 9-11, I uh, dropped everything else that I was uh, doing to a uh, small book, put this, put this book uh, uh, together. Just a small, short, sideways step uh, on on this. When the publisher and I uh, agreed with regard to the, the the title, as you can see, "Transforming Our Terror," and I put the book together, together, and I mentioned this, I think, here uh, a year or two ago, that the publisher wanted to exclude, which I called censor all the non-American stories of terror. That, therefore, it would refer to what the US, and therefore, my accounts of 
my visits to India every year and Bihar, the poorest state where we have a number of initiatives and projects, my uh, 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 contact with uh, communities in that part of the world, I've spoken to you earlier about with the Palestinian and the Israeli communities and uh, peace initiatives and my friends who are engaged in human rights, etc. They didn't want those stories in. And yet they wanted a spiritual response. And I said, there cannot be a spiritual response if it's one-sided. A spiritual response is to show interconnectedness. A spiritual response is to show their suffering is our suffering and our suffering is their suffering. Spiritual response is to show that we have more in common than what separates us. Spiritual response is concerned with compassion and love and not with national identity. It took weeks of struggle to the point I had a meeting with the owner of the publisher uh, in London, actually on the day I got back from uh, uh, India, and in the end I just had to give an ultimatum. I said, all or nothing. You put the whole lot in, or you don't get it. You've had it. No compromise. And then he went back to New York, da, 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 said, okay, Christopher, we'll take it all to their credit. Uh, there. And in this, and this is one of the difficulties I, uh, yeah, and I, uh, I don't want to go too much with the book, but just one piece on intimacy with others. And, I th- and I, what I tried to do, and I think you can probably uh, uh, hear this, is how difficult it is in life and what a huge challenge it is in life. From, the, from experience and what is an experience and our understanding of it, not only inwardly, but as the Buddha frequently says, inwardly and outwardly, is concerned not only with how we see our experience, but also and equally how we see another's experience. Because our interpretation of another's experience is our interpretation of it. We may be accurate, there may be some authentic reflection of her or his or their experience or or there may not be or it may be a mixture and it's not an easy thing in life to really acknowledge but this is how I see this is how I understand this is how I view and I tried to summarize uh, it in just a a few self-evident comments to kind of reflect the challenge that comes uh, uh, with this. Our perception, I wrote, of others and their perception of us can be summarized by the following statements. I do not know what your experience is of a situation. You cannot know my experience of a situation. I do not know what your experience is of me. You cannot know my experience of you. I do not know your experience of yourself. 
You do not know my experience of myself. That's a challenge to live with. That is something to live with. I just have, as a human being, you just have, as a human being, a rather limited capacity to have some perception of what my experience of you might be, what your experience of me might be, what our experience of each other might be, what your experience of yourself might be, what my experience of myself might be. But in that, can we really, really know? And if we get the sense that there's some limitation to what, of our experience of what we really can know of each other, rather than it being a problem, I think it contributes in life to a deeper sense of humility a deeper sense of connection a deeper sense of that in the diversity of experiences all that I can say is perhaps my interpretation perhaps the way I perceive contributes perhaps it shows some understanding but if I'm reactive, if I'm angry, if I'm negative, if I'm controlling, I may not really be saying much about how I see your experience. I may be m much more telling what, how I'm seeing it. I may not really be communicating much about your experience, but what I'm really communicating is much more about what's going on with me as a result. And I think I'm dealing with what's out there. But actually, it's what's going on here which is manifesting. And it's an extraordinary shift for us. And that's, I think, where the humility and the kindnesses and the, and, uh, the love comes in, where the non-heaviness about others come in. Through our ability to listen to each other, to sense each other, to appreciate each other, to experience each other in a very simple way which is not constantly defining each other. Because the definition of the human being can stay long, long, long after the experience of him or her. The experience can fade away. The experience of the person can disappear. <laughs> And in an experience of, say, a reactive one, as an example, the reactivity may fade away. But the critical thing is what's left at the end. And what is the impression of this human being that we have? Because the impression is not who the person is. And we then can find ourselves living in the impression of somebody. And the impression is not true, it's an impression. It's false, it's fiction, it's, 
it's maya, it's a delusion, it's a projection, it's an interpretation. And are we going to live our life in a world of impressions? Living our life, not in truth, not in reality, but in an impressionable existence. Because if we are, it's false. And sometimes it's not the reactivity. It's not the misunderstandings. It's not the blame or whatever that matters. It's what's the residue. And is in the residue of the experience of another or of ourselves that we end up carrying this residue about anything. Sometimes the residue is positive. Oh, I had a wonderful retreat. Sometimes the residue is, feels uh, negative. Oh, I had a terrible time. Oh, the residue is, I don't like this person. The residue is, oh, I really want to see this person, or whatever. And so we're not only concerned with the field of experience and its influence, subtle or gross, but with the impression and Dharma teachings are saying to us again and again, please, please be aware of impressions. Because if we gather the impressions and we start sticking to the, putting them together, we will think and we will talk about each other as though what we think and what we talk about each other is who the person is. And we're out of touch because no experience stays. No experience is lasting. It's constant unfoldment for human, human beings and it's a huge task to be in touch with that unfoldment. I mentioned to you a couple of times um, uh, uh, Israel one of the things I like going to Israel for I have to say is freedom of speech is really alive in that country <laughs> you know, one can speak one's mind in Israel in a way which is not easy in some places and parts of the world. I include, it's not easy here, I have to say, at times. But Israel, no problem. And I was up in Kiel, right up in the north of Israel. And it's about eight miles from the Lebanese border. Just two weeks ago. And I stay with a, a lady called Erika. And Erika is 86 years of age. And she defies all, all the laws of nature because she smokes like a chimney and she's still alive. <laughs> and Erika's story is, I think, an incredibly important story, and I've been so taken with it 
that I encouraged, rather appropriately in a way, two German uh, filmmakers to come with me to Israel last month to meet and talk with Erika, to make a documentary about her story. And they were so taken with her, it's now gone from a documentary to see if they can raise the funds, which would be in the millions of dollars, to make a feature film. And it's one of those stories which, in a way, embrace or capture or embody something of our life. In 19... This is... If I just relate her uh, experience uh, uh, briefly to you. When the fascist uh, occupation took place of Holland, Erika had lived in Amsterdam for about eight years. Her family had escaped from Germany, from Berlin, and then, of course, the fascist army moved into Holland and took over Holland. And she... Uh, decided to go into hiding and in going into and the way that it occurred was that she her husband played the cello and one evening she went to the home of a Dutch um, psychoanalyst and four of them played the cello and they played an evening and she said I think, I think this is 1942 if I remember rightly she said to the psychoanalyst, is there anywhere my husband and I can hide from the Germans? And he very bravely said, you can stay in a room upstairs. If he was caught hiding Jews, it was the firing squad immediately. If they were the risk to her Jewish family would be that the rest of her family would be taken immediately to the concentration camps and the gas chamber. So there were two of them in this room. Then another couple came. So there were four in a small room on the second floor at the back with black curtains to stop the neighbours looking in to see them. And they built a false partition. There was a large wardrobe full of clothes, and behind the wardrobe they built a wooden partition so that when the searches came from the German soldiers, they would get into the wardrobe, get behind the partition, stand there, keep absolutely still when the searches were going on. Then comes the all-too-human drama. Two other young Jews came. There were four of them. All in their twenties. Erica fell in love with the psychoanalyst. <laughs> A little tension in the room. <laughs> This is a true story. Her husband fell in love with the man's wife in the room. The man's wife became depressed. They had to speak in whispers because 
clients were coming to see the psychoanalyst. And the psychoanalyst interview room was on the floor. So you can imagine the tension in there. Couldn't, no beds. Had to be just a normal room. Four of them living in it. And this emotional thing going on, Erica going to the bed of the analyst a few nights a week. All this intensity, as well as being in a life-threatening situation, you could say a near-death experience, every single day. You think we got problems. <laughs> The analyst had a girlfriend. <laughs> it's a true story. The girlfriend said, if he didn't stop seeing Erica, she was going to go to the Gestapo and tell them what was going on. I said to Erica, God, Erica, did you stop seeing him? No. <laughs> Every week or so, a young Dutch woman would come bringing food because it couldn't be seen the analyst bringing food when there's only one for four other people. The Germans would be suspicious. So, a young German woman would come and she would come and then she fell in love <laughs> with the depressed husband. <laughs> I said to Erica, could you get outside the room? She said, no. I said, but what about the lovemaking? She said, we just turned our back <laughs> so the couple could make love and we would just face the wall while they made love <laughs> nothing like this was achieved during the 1970s <laughs> <laughs> and to live two years eight months in this pressure cooker situation. I said to Erica, did you ever go outside of the outside? And she said, once. I said, why did you go out? She said, in order to try to persuade my brother not to go to Westerbork, which was a tr transition camp before they sent the Jewish community off to the concentration camps in certain death. I said, surely people must have known about the concentration camps. Surely information come back. She said, the Germans were forcing the Jewish people to send postcards to their friends and relatives saying, everything's okay. It's okay to come. It's not so bad as what you've been told. And people wanted to believe, wanted to see this was, think this was how it was, that no, no people could uh, uh, exterminate another race. And the brother said, it'll be all right, we'll be all right. It's not true what you've been told. And she went out one night 
to meet with him on a street corner, try to persuade, please don't go, please don't go, please don't go. And he went, and he died. And I, talking with uh, Erica, and, and through this um, period of two years, eight months, I said, what happened when the soldiers came? And she said, one day, we often would hear them in the street doing these uh, house searches. And then they were at the bottom of the, the steps in his house in Amsterdam. And she said, we were peering through a slot in the window there. And she said, we were fixed. It was like we couldn't move. And we were actually in the analyst's room. We uh, went out to the analyst's room. And we were looking through. And the analyst came and said, get into the room, get back, get quickly. And she said, the German SS officer stood at the bottom of the steps with some German soldiers behind him. And she said, he went into a bizarre ritual. He took out of his pocket a long white glove and slowly put it on his hand and with arrogance and the other hand, this long white glove stood there and then he said to the soldiers Ram, which means up, go and they rushed in and of course they rushed into the room and just in time the four of them got behind the partition and Erica said she said we couldn't breathe she said, we had to be absolutely transparent. And we're just there. And the, the wardrobe, this long wardrobe, was opened up. And the German soldiers are shout, were shouting out, come out, come out, you Jewish swine. Come out, pigs, that means. Come out, you Jewish pigs. We know you're in there. So we're shouting out in every room. And then put the bayonet right through the clothes. Such intensity. Can you imagine the, the relief? And I said, how could you live like that? Every day, having to deal with this persecution, this n nightmare. And she said, what kept us going was the, the belief, the fact that we knew if our thought went into the future, it would be despair. We had to live one day at a time. Because if we think, how long could this go on for? We were just terrified with anxiety and fear. We just couldn't let our mind go to the future. We had to take it one day after the next. I said, what happened at the end? She said, one day the Germans went out and the next day the Canadian soldiers came in and said, you're free. <laughs> I said, God, what a feeling you must have had. Oh, she said, Phew. incredible, incredible. So I said, then I said, well, Erica, and what happened? <laughs> what happened? She said, I married the analyst. The uh, husband went with the other one. The Dutch lady never turned up. <laughs> and life went on. Life went on. Yeah. 
I think these kind of situations and kind of exp- uh, experiences, and it's something rather appropriate that two German filmmakers are so keen for this to be shown to people. And they filmed her a lot, and they talked with her a lot, and they recorded what she had to say. And so there's a cooperation between an Israeli, German, and Dutch film company to see whether this account of four, five people's experience. And I think sometimes these situations in our life, we're in the pressure cooker situation. We don't know what will happen. We don't know what the future uh, uh, will be. We're we're challenged in a whole variety of of ways. And can we, as the great teachings of equanimity show us, can we stay steady? Just take it one day at a time. Just respond to our experience for each day. And I think we, and I feel, we, we still need the inspiration of these kind of stories. We still need, need the reminders of the uh, extraordinary human capacity to deal with ex- unbelievably strong events. And as uh, Erica said to me, she said, after that, she said, Christopher, I have never had any fear in my life since then. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. And then just finally on experience. We've talked about profound and deep experiences. And they're important. But sometimes we make a duality. We make a duality between our ordinary and everyday experiences. And those special ones, those unique ones those important ones, those life-changing ones. Do we need that duality? Do we need that profound experience? Do we need something dramatic to happen to us? Could it be that with every experience, from the most ordinary, the most non-special, the most instantly forgettable, could that experience be revealing the truth of things as much as any other is that in some way or other the most ordinary things of life reveal truth as much as the extraordinary things of life that there is no real division and therefore we can discover our freedom without any special nor profound experience without anything really major nor big happening to us. That we actually know and we sense and we feel and we experience that the ordinary thing of life is also extraordinary. The ordinary thing of life can't block anything. It's just what it is. And then we can welcome and appreciate the most ordinary, ordinary, to the most super-ordinary, and know it's all part of the same extraordinaryness, magic. Be happy. (laughs) May all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into the nature of experience. May all beings live a free life.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.